The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Messenger in Washington, DC. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Every Monday on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Today on Deadline DC, we will address a couple of hot news topics. Last week, of course, uh, most of the uh, Northeast and some of the Midwest was covered by an orange haze that came from wildfires in Nova Scotia. Uh, to discuss that and the health and economic uh, damage that comes from climate change, our guest is Bob Deems, uh, Director of Strategic Engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Then, of course, in the second half hour, we'll talk about the other big news stories, and that is Donald Trump's indictment. Uh, to discuss the ins and outs of uh, and the political ramifications of Trump's indictment, our guest will be Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of uh, Politicus USA. But before we get to our first guest, we're going to play this clip uh, from the chief miracle correspondent at ABC News discussing the health risks from the uh, climate change uh, wildfires that uh, covered the uh, much of America last week from Nova Scotia. Yeah, I think the key thing here, George, is that we usually say, oh, you know, if people have underlying respiratory or pulmonary conditions, they are most at risk. While that is true, I want to be clear here. We are all at risk. This is fine particulate matter. You cannot necessarily see it in the air, but you can feel it. And this can come on suddenly masquerading almost like seasonal allergy symptoms or even an upper respiratory infection. But we know there's a situation. So assume we are all at risk. Um, and obviously things that you can do, reduce or avoid going outdoors, really, unless it's necessary, um, because these fine particulate matter particles can get into the eyes and lungs, causing symptoms like burning eyes, runny nose. It can even precipitate bronchitis. And obviously, if you have underlying cardiovascular or respiratory conditions, you are most at risk. But you're again, you're saying everyone, everyone. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is an, a true environmental public health. What issue. other precautions can we take? Listen, I think common sense precautions really apply here. If you have to go outside, put a mask on. Otherwise, keep your indoor air as clean as possible. Run your air conditioning if you have it. Be in touch with your health care provider if you have asthma. But again, N95 or KN95, the best we have right now, if you have to go out, put one on. That was Jen Ashton, who was the chief medical correspondent of ABC News, talking about the uh, health dangers uh, posed by uh, last week's Nova Scotia fire, uh, wildfires. 
Our guest in this half hour is Bob Deans, who is Director of Strategic Engagement uh, at Natural Resources Defense Council. Bob is also the author of a great book, Reckless, The Political Assault on the Environment. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining us again. Great to be with you, Brad. Uh, you know, obviously, I think the big news story last week uh, were the Nova Scotia firefighters uh, and watching the uh, news coverage of the event. Uh, it was everywhere. Uh, do you think, you know, I think one, one of the interesting things about what happened with the Nova Scotia firefighters is uh, firefighters, uh, wildfires is that, you know, the East Coast got a taste of something that's been pretty much confined to the West. We're always uh, hearing and reading and seeing stories about wildfires in California uh, or the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and those are uh, the hazards from those fires uh, are very detrimental for people living in the Western United States. But for the first time in my memory, uh, we got a taste uh, North Easterners uh, got a taste of what it was like uh, with firefighters. No question, Brad. And I think that's really the story that we're seeing about the climate crisis now worldwide is increasingly the story is there is no sanctuary uh, from the hazard and harm that is getting worse by the day from this climate crisis. And all of these uh, telltale signs that we're seeing, whether it's rising seas, uh, floods that swamp a third of a country the size of Pakistan, uh, are these raging uh, floods, blistering droughts, withering heat, and these uh, cataclysmic wildfires. There is no sanctuary. There is no escape uh, from the consequences of the climate crisis that we're continuing to drive with the uh, use of fossil fuels. We have just got to shift away from these fuels and, and move on to cleaner, smarter ways to power our future. And just to give a sense of the scale of what we're dealing with with Canada, I checked the numbers this morning. Um, and as of today, Monday, the fires in Canada have burned 12 million acres of land all across from the Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast of Canada. Um, these lands are being consumed. 12 million acres. How big is that? That's enough to cover half the state of Indiana. And Brad, it's the 12th day of June. It's not even summer yet, and we're already seeing this kind of cataclysmic wildfire season uh, across the, the width of Canada. And by the way, just again, for comparison's sake, that is 20 times more land than has been burned by wildfires in this country to date. So, you know, our, our hearts are with the people of Canada right now who are suffering, as you say, the first responders, these firefighters who are risking their lives out there trying to contain these fires. About 220 of them, Brad, these are major fires, are burning out of control across Canada right now. And um, our hearts are also with the, the Canadian people, some of whom, thousands of whom have had to evacuate their homes, uh, losing property. Uh, and at the same time, as you say, much of this country Something like 100 million Americans at one point last week were under code red. Uh, the YMCA here outside of Washington shut down outside activities for two days because of the air quality. And the one thing about it here in Washington, um, as you know, Brad, 
you try to drive home the impact of these consequences. But there's nothing like looking outside the Oval Office window and having the case made for you for climate action. I think that when you see smoky skies over the Rose Garden, it does tend to focus the mind, Brad. You know, the most striking image I remember from last week was uh, watching one of the network news shows, and they showed this picture of uh, the New York skyline, which you could barely see, actually, and it was completely orange. Uh, It was, you know, it was very striking. Well, you know, you raise a good point, Bob, because, uh, you know, this hit uh, Washington, D.C. really hard uh, and uh, caused all sorts of problems. And, you know, I don't seem to remember, and maybe it was because I didn't pay enough attention, a clamor uh, in D.C. and in in Congress to urgently address the climate change problem. Did I miss that? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's some climate champs who are out there making the case. But as you alluded to earlier, earlier, it's been a very newsy week uh, here in this town on other fronts. I will say this, though, you can't help but notice what was happening last week was just one week after we concluded a week's long negotiations around averting a default on our debt. And by negotiating a new debt ceiling uh, deal, and there were extremists in the House who wanted to zero out the climate progress we've made in the past year, these hard-won investments in clean energy um, from the Inflation Reduction Act last year. There were extremists in the House that wanted that investment zeroed out as part of the deal to avert a uh, debt crisis that would have thrown the economy right over the cliff. And this is the kind of thing we're up against uh, here in Congress right now. And let's be let's remember the impact that this investment has already had just since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed last August, Brad. In the 10 months since then, companies have announced eighty three billion dollars in investment across the heartland, new factories to build solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles, batteries and the like. Sixty three thousand New jobs, Brad, in red states and blue, Ohio, Michigan, South Carolina, Georgia, on and on. It was nice to know there's some good news along with that. Bob, we've got to take a short break for our radio listeners, but we will continue the show uh, for our viewers on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be right back with more of Bob Dean from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Welcome back to Deadline DC Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is Bob Deans, who is Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and he's author of a great book called Reckless, The Political Assault on the American Environment. Okay, Bob, let's start with this. Uh, Before we went to break, uh, we were talking about the onset of hurricane season and forest fire season. Uh, and my guess is, that, you know, these things, these situations, these health emergencies are becoming more extreme every year. And my question to you is, what is it going to take to get Congress uh, to move 
Uh, I think the last time you were on the show, which I think was back in April, we talked about a United Nations report uh, talking about the uh, urgent uh, need to address the uh, uh, the problem internationally. Uh, but let's start with Washington. What's it going to are we going to just have to how much of these disasters are we going to have to endure before Congress takes action? It's going to be uh, dependent on the American people, as it is in any democracy. We need to demand action uh, from those people who are obstructing it. And it's pretty clear who those people are. And so in this country, 70 percent of the people get it. They understand it. They want Washington to take more action against this climate crisis. That's an over overwhelming consensus nationally. And it cuts across age groups. It cuts across geographic groups. It even cuts to a very large extent across political lines. But you have one party, the Republicans, that are attracting huge amounts of uh, cash uh, from the fossil fuel industry each year. And this is in the form of direct contributions. It's in the form of PAC money that supports their campaigns. And uh, they are subservient to that industry. And that's, there's just no question about it. And so the American people have to say, OK, look, that's uh, the, you know, the, the oil and gas companies have a right to stand up for their shareholders. We have a responsibility to stand up for what's good for the rest of us. And so that's what people have to do. We have to demand action. We have to stop falling for this uh, kind of nonsense that we hear about people who from the climate denier side and uh, from churlish candidates who belittle efforts that are creating jobs, making our country more energy secure and uh, strengthening the domestic supply chain for the building blocks of a modern economy. That's what we're really talking about here, Brad. Okay, Uh, let's turn to another subject. Uh, The uh, last week, uh, the 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 Republican controlled House of Representatives came to an agreement on the budget uh, with President Biden. And the way I look at it, there was uh, both good and bad news in the budget agreement. Uh, The good news was that the uh, efforts to fight climate change that were institutionalized in President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act survived. Uh, The bad news is uh, that as part of the agreement, uh, there was a go ahead to uh, do a uh, uh, oil and gas pipeline, I think, in the Appalachians uh, through Virginia. Could you talk about those two things, please? Sure. Um, first of all, President Biden deserves enormous credit for standing up and successfully preventing extremists from gutting those uh, investments in the Inflation Reduction Act that are already spawning a heartland industrial renaissance with clean energy at its core. He stood up for that and uh, protected those investments. Um, where the uh, White House uh, gave way, if you will, was on something called the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is a pet project of Senator Joe Manchin's from West Virginia. This pipeline would take natural gas from West Virginia through Virginia. And uh, the people all along the way, if you know the, where it would go through, um, it's, it's some of the most beautiful country anywhere in the world. It's, uh, it's mountain valleys, hollows, uh, pine shaded glades and mossy glens and farms and ranches. And the people do not want it. They've made that clear. They don't want to put at risk for a pipeline that would lock us into 30, 40, maybe 50 more years of dependence 
on these dangerous fossil fuels at the very time we need to shift away from them, Brad. And so it's a bad idea. We think it was a mistake. Uh, and we've said so. Okay. Uh, let's uh, go to another topic. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided an environmental case, uh, which was uh, called uh, Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, tell us about that case and the uh, implications. Sure. The Supreme Court had a simple question before it. Does water run downhill? And the Supreme Court decided maybe not. And uh, that's really what happened. Let me explain. The issue here was um, a some some wetlands and ephemeral stream area uh, in a place out west flowing into a a beautiful lake. And the question was, does the Clean Water Act protect the waters that flow into a river, a lake, an estuary, a bay? For 50 years, the uh, common sense answer has been, of course, you can't protect a river without protecting the waters that flow into it. Yeah, you would think so. You would think so. So what the Supreme Court or the majority, and remember, this was a 5-4 decision, and even Justice Kavanaugh would not go along with it because he said it was too radical of a rewriting of the law that Congress passed. And so even uh, Brett Kavanaugh departed from that. But the 5-4 majority said that wetlands can be protected only if they have a contiguous a continuous surface connection to a river, lake, stream, estuary, or bay, a a body of water. As you and I know, a lot of wetlands uh, go into the groundwater, or when it rains, those wetlands do have a surface connection with the water. They'll flood over their banks. And um, so what this basically did, Brad, was it said that about half the wetlands in the United States are now up for grabs. It's not quite clear whether or not they are still protected by the Clean Water Act. So the court, in its wisdom, has not only undermined protections for uh, the waters of the United States, but it has also added uncertainty that's going to encourage litigation and uh, clog up the courts with all kinds of capricious uh, uh, measures and, and uh, spurious lawsuits. So uh, we think that was a mistake. And uh, what we're going to do is work hard to see if Congress can make clear and explicit that to protect the waters of this country, the rivers, the lakes, the streams we all depend on for irrigation, for drinking water, for swimming, for fishing, that protect those waters, you've got to protect the water that flows into them. It's common sense. We want to make that the law of the land. And, yeah, it is common sense, but that doesn't necessarily apply in D.C., especially when it comes to Republican damage could this do? Can do enormous, it, it can do enormous damage. And let me just give you one quick example. Okay. Um, I read just the other day in the Coastal Observer, which is a uh, local newspaper down on the coast of South Carolina, there is a plan uh, for um, economic development that combines uh, common sense conservation measures in Georgetown County, South Carolina, right on the coast down there uh, around Pawleys Island, Myrtle Beach area, if you know that, just north of Charleston. This is a plan that's been years in the making. It has consensus support. All of a sudden, front page lead story in the Coastal Observer, the whole plan has been thrown up for grabs because nobody knows what the implications are going to be 
from that decision the Supreme Court made to Bob, I want to thank you for joining us in the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I'm sure we will have you back if you're willing. Uh, We're going to a break now. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon after this brief break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, in the first half hour, we talked about uh, the big story, new story of last week with the Nova Scotia forest fires, which uh, left a uh, orange haze all over the northeast, net or northeast and parts of the Midwest. In this half hour, we're going to talk about the other big news story, which is uh, the uh, president, uh, former failed President Trump's uh, indictment on under the Espionage Act, all 38 counts or 37 or whatever it is. Uh, Before we get to our guest, Sarah Jones from Politicus USA, we're going to play this very disturbing clip and so disturbing. I wonder if it's even a real good idea to play it uh, from Carrie Lake, uh, the former failed uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate from uh, Arizona, who seems to be threatening uh, the president and the, uh, uh, the attorney general and the special prosecutor with violence. I'll make let you make your own decision. I have a message tonight from Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and Joe Biden and the guys back there in the fake news media. You should listen up as well. This one's for you. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep. Most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. That was pretty funny, wasn't it? You know, uh, our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, who is the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Uh, we're going to talk about the Trump indictments in this half hour. Uh, but before I ask Sarah a question, uh, you know, that clip is really horrifying. Uh, you know, it's a subtle way of, you know, threatening violence uh, against the president of the United States. Maybe it's not so subtle. The attorney general, uh, Merrill Garland, and the special prosecutor, Jack Smith. When I first heard of uh, uh, Trump's indictment uh, last week, uh, I, like many millions of Americans, were glad it finally happened. Somebody's finally trying to hold Donald Trump accountable. But the more I thought about it, the more depressed I was. Uh, For one thing, I kept asking myself, how did a guy like Donald Trump, who so blatantly ignores the law and the Constitution, get elected president of the United States in the first place. There must be something fundamentally wrong when a guy like that uh, can become president. Then uh, after that, my next wave of depression uh, came when I started uh, hearing and seeing people like Carrie Lake uh, threaten violence, 
to the uh, Biden administration for bringing Donald Trump finally to account. Uh, and the other thing that upset me uh, was the baseless defense by Republicans of uh, Trump's actions. It seems to me anybody with half a brain can see that he violated the law and the Constitution. But uh, basically, uh, the Republican defense was very depressing, I thought. Well, he was president. He can do anything he wants. And Jack Smith said in his the special prosecutor said in his uh, press conference that no one, not even a former United States uh, president, uh, a former United States president is above the law. Apparently, uh, many Republicans think Donald Trump is against the law. He himself said, well, you can't indict me. I'm running for president, political interference. Well, he's just like anybody else who violates the law. But anyway, uh, sorry, uh, let's bring on uh, Sarah while I calm down. Uh, Sarah, what was your reaction to the, uh, the news of the Trump indictment? Well, you know, first of all, it was a long time coming. So there yes. was a sense of, you know, finally uh, someone is holding him accountable for something that he's done against this country, allegedly. Because, you know, what happened in New York is not about what he's done to this country. Now, what has come out since that indictment was unsealed? We have heard um, experts, including from his own former um, Department of Homeland Security, a counterterrorism expert said that throughout the four years of his presidency, he was jeopardizing national security and that this is more of the same and that this costs people their lives. And so to come to hear that. And of course, you know, the very first time that I went on um, international television after Trump was elected, I talked about him being a national security threat. That has always been the story of Donald Trump's presidency. There were a lot of horrible things that he did and a lot of distractions. But ultimately, when it came down to it, it wasn't even a partisan thing. It was that he was putting our country at risk. And he continues to do that. We don't even know yet from this unsealed indictment that we have all of the documents back from him. And we don't know who's all seen them. We know that foreign... Um, dignitaries and people related to them traipsed through Mar-a-Lago and that this stuff was out there in the open for anyone. One of the rooms even has a looks like it has a copy machine in it. I mean, you know, it's absolutely absurd. And just hear Republicans defend this. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's one story about him showing uh, Kid Rock uh, secret maps of uh, North Korea. Uh, Kid Rock, the well-known uh, national security expert. Right. Uh, and he's showing other people invasion plans uh, of uh, Iran. And, right. you know, I mean, why don't we just show Hitler the uh, invasion plans uh, on D-Day and the beaches of Normandy? I mean, yeah. Jesus. This is um, going to impact us for at least like the next 10 to 20 years. Our, a lot of our secrets are out there. Our allies don't trust us anymore. And I think to hear people undermining this and dismissing it and excusing it, is absolutely reprehensible. And I'm going to go so far as to say that a lot of these people who are elected took an oath of office to protect this country from all threats, foreign or domestic. And I am getting the idea that they're not doing that. And, you know, I mean, again, as the other thing that really bothers me, uh, and again, I go back to 
horrible clip from Kerry Lake is the threats of violence. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, is it just seems to me that American, the American political system is just breaking down. And basically, Donald Trump, if he's going to go down, he's determined to take the country down with him, uh, which is nobly patriotic, of course. Right. Well, hasn't he always been? I mean, I don't think I've actually was thinking a lot about this in the first um, or maybe the second couple of pieces I wrote about this indictment. I was thinking about you know, has he ever put this country over himself? I don't actually remember that ever happening. And uh, repeatedly, the story that his story has been that he comes first, enriching himself uh, comes first. And, you know, this country, I don't even know if it's on his list of priorities. I mean, we have not seen any evidence that it is. And for someone who was in office for four years, that should have come up at some point. But let's not forget, he, he gave the Russians... He brought them into the Oval Office and gave them our secrets during his presidency. This is what a lot of these, the very few Republicans that are coming forward now, like his own, you know, hand-picked Attorney General Bill Barr, doing his own reputation management circuit now. Oh, you know, this this indictment's really bad. Well, you know, Mr. Barr was one of many people justifying uh, Donald Trump's assault on this country. Um, on our national security and his own, um, you know, he did he did those things after knowing that Trump had the Russians into the Oval Office. So and knowing the Russians interfered, um, he knew more than probably anyone except for, you know, Robert Mueller, how much the Ru- Russians um, interfered and how open the Trump campaign was to that. So why this country's been gaslit that we can't even talk about these things that are real it's it, that's been going on for so long and until and we don't get a handle on that i don't see how the democracy survives we have to get on the same page with the majority of people and agree on the facts these things happened you know it's amazing uh we got to go to break in a minute but uh i'm reading a book about the uh, political uh, situation in the united states just prior to the civil war and i'm reading this and thinking, God, is this happening again? Uh, The threats of violence, the polarization, uh, this is really a mess. Uh, We've got to go to break now, a very short break, uh, but uh, to uh, let our radio listeners off for a few minutes, but uh, our guest is Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Politicus USA, And we are going to continue this conversation after a very short break for our video uh, uh, viewers on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, So uh, we will talk more about the uh, political and legal implications of the Trump uh, indictment and the dangers that's causing the nation right after this very short break. Back to Deadline C with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, we're discussing the legal and political implications of Donald Trump's indictments, or latest indictments, I should say. Uh, our guest is uh, Sarah Jones, who's editor in chief of Politicus USA. Okay, Sarah, let's try this. Uh, the last uh, poll, national poll I saw of Republican primary voters, which came out last week, I think it was conducted before the indictment, 
this set of indictments anyway, showed uh, with uh, Trump with 61% of the Republican vote. And I think uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had 28. Now, before the Gene Carroll case was decided, uh, before he uh, Trump was indicted for felony fraud in uh, New York City in Manhattan uh, by grand jury in Manhattan, uh, he was leading uh, DeSantis in the national polls by 25 um, or 20 points. Uh, but his lead has been widening. And my question to you is, uh, do you think uh, once the news of these re recent set of indictments uh, is uh, registers, uh, do you think Donald Trump's lead over Ron DeSantis uh, will go up or go down? Well, yeah, I want to say that I think what's happening because that one of the excuses that the media seems to use, we shouldn't, you know, prosecute Donald Trump because then, you know, he's going to have get more support. We have to remember this is all happening in the bubble of the Republican Party. And within that party, he's always been leading, as you pointed out. Um, I don't think that he is. I don't think this helps him in a general election against, you know, Joe Biden. Does it help him against these other Republicans? Yes. I mean, these people, the, the Trump base, which is the majority of the Republican Party, are being reanimated by just hearing his voice. I wrote a, about this today on Politicus USA, a view from Trump country because I live in Trump country. You know, these people, they've, they've had a little Trump fatigue. They've taken down a lot of their signs. It's There's been less support for him visually and on the ground, just in conversation. That doesn't mean they're not gonna support him. So as soon as they start hearing him, and it's like his voice is like a cult leader, it's it serves as Kool-Aid. As soon as they hear it and they hear him blaming Democrats and Joe Biden and everybody's out to get me, as tired as they are of his drama, which they are, they also are brought right back to, you know, being animated and going full-fledged support for him. I don't think DeSantis has and I never thought he was going to have Trump voters. He's got the, the the wealthier people in the party who want a better face on this kind of neo-fascism that they're pushing. So, you know, that's what DeSantis is, right? He's um, he's a know, friendly he, fascist. He's a friendly looking, but he's not, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's a good look for fascism, um, or at least it, it seems like that on the surface. I'm not even sure that it's actually true, because when you see him on video and you see him interviewed, he's a very robotic and I think that's why he chose to announce next to Elon Musk, who himself is robotic. It was like, maybe the comparison's going to help me. So. OK, well, how about this? Uh, I was uh, watching some legal expert uh, on one of the networks uh, talk about how this new set of indictments will play out. And he suggested that there might not even be a trial on these new indictments uh, until after the election next year. Uh, so the question is, uh, what impact do you think this is going to have on the uh, 2024 presidential campaign? And let's assume uh, that uh, Trump is going to be nominated by the Republicans, as a decent enough chance that he will be. Uh, he'll be running against Joe Biden. Uh, and as soon as the presidential election is over, or more likely in January of 2025, uh, he could be a president uh, on trial 
um, uh, or it won't matter anymore be, uh, because uh, he'll be uh, lose to Joe Biden again and uh, he'll be a private citizen on trial. How do you think this is going to play out over the course of the 2024 presidential election? Well, a lot of that is really so, you know, depends on Judge Cannon. Right. We already know she's uh, not only incompetent, but but um, biased for Trump. Um, does she recuse herself? Does she allow his usual tactics of delay, 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 uh, which is going to hurt the country if they do let that happen? Um, how is it going to play out in the if if it's postponed, which, it, you know, let's just say she's she's staying there and it gets postponed. Um, then then I don't think that he's ever going to be brought to justice on these charges, um, you know, in a way. I mean, it doesn't look like that would happen um, if he won the election. Certainly not. And if he doesn't win the election, I think we're going to be pretty busy dealing with some other issues brought on by him. But, you know, either way, the, the rule of law says that he should be treated like everyone else. And Judge Cannon says that he should be treated specially because he was a form is a former president. And so that makes her right away. She should follow the rule that she needs to recuse because it looks to the public like she's not impartial. Um, and, and as far as how it will play out for the Republican base, you know, they're not there's not going to be any problem for them. They would vote for, a, you know, he's already twice impeached. He's already found liable for sexual assault. They don't care if he's a criminal. They don't care that he's hurt the United States. They don't care that he hurt the military. They don't care. Now, is it because they don't hear about it? I think that's a big part of it because the right wing media never tells them this stuff. And I know that from talking to people every day. And when I bring up to them like, hey, you used to be in the military. Don't you think that it's not cool to share, you know, our plans for, you know, and then people be like, oh, well, that, yeah, that's not OK. But but, you know, it's not fair because Joe Biden and they're just conditioned to then turn around and, and go back to Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden because in there that's what they're told all day long. It's whataboutism, it's deflect, you know, it's deny. So they're going to be out there voting for Donald Trump um, until he is no longer with us. <laughs> I'm okay. afraid. Uh, that's a discouraging thought, uh, yeah. but you're probably right about that. Um, okay, well, let me ask you this, Sarah. I uh, Before the indictments were announced on Friday or whenever they were announced last week, um, I saw a new national poll. Uh, and the head-to-heads uh, showed that uh, Trump and Biden were in a tight, uh, a tough, a tight race and a tough race. Uh, the other thing that startled me is if you looked at the unfavorable, uh, the number of voters who had a favorable opinion of both candidates, 31% had a favorable opinion of Joe Biden. And 31% had a favorable opinion of Donald Trump. How can that happen? Well, that, uh, it's it's just so sad what's going on in our country because obviously these two uh, presidents were, are very different people. You would think um, so. Yeah, you. I mean, it's obvious on it. You know, here, no matter what anybody thinks about Joe Biden, he's competent. He shows up every day. He's doing the work for the people, and he is doing work. For red states, the same as he is for blue states, which is the job of the president that Donald Trump did not do. He also took care of, you know, the pandemic. Um, I know it's not over, over, and I have issues with that. But, um, you know, he did his job is the point. So how 
um, how is that? How are the two being equated? You might say that it's the polarization of the country that, but I think the the real problem, if you know, is that Democrats are kind of um, they're always so critical of their own, right? Which is a good thing, hold people accountable. But then when you see polls like this, you're going to see that reflected. That's not happening on the right. They don't criticize their own, and there's constant cheerleading. So you, that's part of the poll. And the other part of it is that. Joe Biden is in office right now, and he's going to be held accountable for things that aren't even in his control, um, some of which isn't in his control. So, you know, rising inflation, the cost of homes, all of the, the supply chain, all of these things that he doesn't have direct control over, people might be um, responding based on those things. Whereas Donald Trump, it's all nostalgia for his base. Things were so great, you know, as you as we know it, it was absolutely horrific. but. You know, I think that's reflected. Okay, uh, Sarah, I want to uh, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure having you on uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, I want to thank uh, both our guests today, uh, Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Politicus USA, and Bob Deans, uh, Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Stand strong and uh, stand, uh, be strong in these troubled and turbulent times. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC next Monday, live at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, or the podcast anytime where you can watch the show on facebook.com front slash Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, front slash videos, and twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, have uh, fun. Until then, we'll see you next Monday. Thank you.